If you want a, a healthy a crop of uh, workers in the skilled trades because you need to fill some economic gap, uh, well, you're not going to fill it with that understanding. Um, what, what we're trying to do is saying, okay, well, let's, let's go back to some basics here. Let's go back to understanding and forming, in our case, men, uh, forming their habits, their uh, virtues, their imaginations, their skills, uh, forming them around this more fundamental notion of what work is for. And then as a byproduct, you have more and better workers. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard David Michael Phelps, Dean and Director of Program Development at Harmel Academy of the Trades, speaking on the dignity of human work, how it is tied to our freedom to create value in the physical world, and its necessary connection to virtue. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome to Acton Line. I'm Sarah Negri, Research Project Coordinator at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by David Phelps, Dean and Director of Program Development at Harmel Academy of the Trades in Grand Rapids, Michigan. David has over 15 years of experience in education and administration. His career has included professorial and administrative roles at Baker College, Calvin College, and Sacred Heart Academy, as well as those of creative director, brand strategist, film producer, and writer in the marketing and media realms. David's past involvement with the Acton Institute includes collaborative film work on Acton's For the Life of the World and Our Great Exchange film curricula. Today we'll be discussing how a dignified vision of human work places value on both the needs of the market and the needs of the workmen, encourages virtue, and fulfills man's call to be a co-creator with God. We'll especially look at how Harmel Academy of the Trades right here in Grand Rapids seeks to embody this vision. David, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. First off, for those of us who might not be familiar, could you give us a brief summary of who Leon Harmel, the namesake of your academy, was, and tell us about his impact on not only Catholic social teaching, but just in general, a just and compassionate view of the worker and his place in the world? Yeah, so Leon Harmel was a 19th century uh, French industrialist. He had a uh, uh, a factory in France, for lack of a better term. And uh, one of the things uh, that history looks upon uh, Harmel favorably for was his attention to what is sometimes called the, the worker question or the social question. Obviously, a lot had uh, changed, uh, not only in, um, in, in industry in the 19th century, in the century preceding, but there were a lot of uh, social changes that came with it. And uh, uh, Harmel um, was a, a, a Franciscan, the Lord of Franciscan. And after his wife died, he dedicated himself essentially to doing what he could to address this worker question with his own employees. So he was uh, quite innovative for his day. Um, he uh, not only in, employed people, but he made sure that they were educated, built chapels for them to go to mass, sponsored them on pilgrimage, built schools for their kids. Um, was an innovator in the realm of things like retirement funds, 
Um, his, he saw his uh, business as a mode of helping uh, the men and women and families of his community to, to realize – uh, realized the truth of themselves in their in their community and in their family, and saw that his business was given to him in order to do that. And um, he became friendly with with Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, Leo the Thirteenth uh, was uh, like to say that the world needed more Harmels. That we need to multiply men who saw business and work like he saw it. And uh, was really, in a sense, if you think of uh, Rerum Novarum as uh, the encyclical that. Um, sort of kicks off uh, a, a tradition of, of thought in the modern age about uh, work and economics, then you can think of Leon Harmel as one instantiation of what faithful Catholic presence in the world of work looks like. Could you also give us a little background history on Harmel Academy itself? As I understand, it's a pretty new institution. Yeah, it's very new. Um, it's, it's been in development in one form or another for uh, the better part of uh, five years. Um, but uh, we are now uh, up and running, a fully operational battle station. So um, we're now in our second year of operation. Uh, Harmel Academy is a, a trade school. Uh, it's a trade school for um, uh, Catholic men. It's a residential trade school. And all the words that I just used all um, actually uh, – um, how should I say? All the words that I've just used actually don't really – uh, explain well what we mean by any of those words. So, <laughs> so for example, it's it's post secondary, um, so it's college in that sense, uh, and it's residential. So, like any college, you go off to uh, college and you live there. Uh, that's very unusual for trade schools. Uh, usually, trade schools are for men and women who are already at work in a job and they go to school to get their technical training at night. But this is a residential school and part of the reason it's a residential school is because it's not simply meant to provide trades training but it's actually meant to be a community of spiritual and intellectual formation alongside of skills formation. So um, we, we focus on forming specifically men, a community of men and um, they live in community. They, uh, they work, they pray, they study together, um, they eat together. Uh, so there's a it's it's not a monastery, but there's a quasi monastic aspect to it, in the sense that the men that come are expected to um, study, uh, to uh, uh, to pray the divine office in community three times a day, um, and uh, yeah, while at the same time they um, they they hold down apprenticeship jobs three days a week, so they are uh, working in the field in an apprenticeship um, for you know somewhere to eighteen twenty four hours a week. Uh, then they take their technical training. But they also take um, a pretty robust cycle of humanities courses in theology and philosophy, uh, film literature, uh, history um, with a focus on forming um, their imaginations and their intellects so that they understand uh, not just how to work but why they work. And, uh, and that alone is a, a pretty deep question but that's, uh, that's what we exist to do. Great. Well, if you don't mind, can we dive right into that deep question a little bit and talk about why we work yeah. and the importance of human labor? Uh, I'm curious to know what you think are the key elements that give dignity to human labor. Yeah. Uh, St. John Paul the Great himself sort of tells us what the, uh, the source of the dignity of, of work is. And um, in laborum exertions, uh, which is in this you know tradition of the social encyclicals, um, John Paul um, 
he, he says a number of striking things actually. But one of the things that he, he emphasizes is that um, work, whatever it may, may be – and he's, he's actually um, – He's actually a little coy about actually defining work. In the opening paragraphs, he sort of says, well, anything that could be called work is work, which to my mind isn't uh, you know, sufficient definition, but I'm not a saint, so uh, we'll <laughs> go with it. Um, but uh, but, but uh, he, he, he makes some rather striking statements about work and, and he, he notes that work is a man by which obviously we build community, we, uh, we provide for ourselves, we earn our daily bread, we serve our neighbors, we build societies, all these sorts of things. And then he goes one step further and talks about how this is a way that you know, sort of man exercises a dominion over the earth and develops uh, the gift of uh, lordship, for lack of a better term, over creation that God has given him. So this is important as well. Uh, and so there's and there's all of these uh, ways of working, intellectual work, and also manual work. Um, but one of the one of the things that he he notes is that uh, the the social question that we referenced earlier. The social question, um, part of the answer, and in fact, he says it's perhaps the essential key to this question, is is what we really mean by work, especially not simply in its objective sense, what we do, but in its subjective sense. And so if the question is where does the dignity of work come from, he's adamant that it comes because a person does it that there is a subjective sense of work and the primary value of work according to John Paul is that in, is found in its subjective sense and not in its objective sense. So the objective sense of work, all the things we do, the, 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 the things that we create or build, the services that we render, the way we exercise dominion over the world, how we order things, those are all very important and require their own type of genius and ordering. But the primary value of work is not in those things. The primary value of work is in the fact that it is a human person that does it and by doing it is self-actualizing um, the image of God as a, a creator, as a father. Um, and, and, and he says this is, the essential, uh, this is the essential key or he suggests, he says perhaps it's the essential key. Uh, of understanding the social question itself is do we understand that work is – work's primary value is in the fact that this is the means by which a human person realizes and self-actuates um, the image of God and the calling that God's given him to, to, to mimic him in the world. It's really neat you make that distinction with the personal element. So you're distinguishing human labor from, say, a beaver building a dam or like other kinds of work that maybe we could say animals do. The the element of it that John Paul II is really drawing attention to is that personal aspect that gives it dignity. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, he, he even says how we can uh, – in a sense, we can speak about how uh, like a machine doing work, which in, in, in his language, that's not technically correct, right? And, I, and um, this is why – you, you, you put your finger exactly on why definitions are important, right? Is, is there a sense in which a beaver, a beaver is actually labor or Justin Bieber for that matter? Um, certainly <laughs> that would be – too, that, sure. Yeah, well, it's a work to listen to it. Um, <laughs> it's laborious. Sorry, Justin. Um, uh, but um, <laughs> uh, but but work I – think I think it could be said that work is not this thing that um, – uh, if a person doesn't do it, I think you could argue that's not work or labor. Is it laborious or toil? Maybe, but um, but yeah, the work qua work. Um, I think we could be said is something that a person does. So, and, and in our case, it's a human person, but divine persons as well. 
I better I, check with your theologians on that one, though. I don't know if I just uttered any heresy. <laughs> no, that was great. Thanks. We frequently hear these days about a skilled labor shortage, which it seems has only worsened since the start of the pandemic. Can you talk a little about why there's such a shortage? Well, that's that's the question of the day. Um, there's a number of factors that are certainly contributing factors to what degree they have causal relationships is is probably beyond my capacity to say with any any degree of confidence. But we can we can lay out a few of the clear contributing factors. Um, one of the things that I see as uh, in my in my work with the, the students and with other educators is um, is is specifically related to this concept of what work is and therefore education's role in forming people uh, for themselves, for their vocations, for their work. Uh, we, we, we're, we're probably facing maybe three generations now where – and you'd probably recognize something like this. You go to high school and, uh, and, if you, and, if you, and if you play the game right, if you're playing it the way you're supposed to go, well, then you go after 12th grade, you go to 13th grade. We call it college and, and you got to go to college because and, and, college is the next part of school and, and that's where you want to go. And uh, there is this sense by default that if you, you, if you don't do that, then you're somehow settling for second or third place or you can't hack it or you're not smart enough or something like this. And so we have this sort of this, this cultural understanding that's sort of taken root that if you go to work, that somehow you are missing out, you are not realizing your potential, that you are – a second-class student or person or citizen of some some way, so you're already you're already by um, activating this misunderstanding about the dignity of work. You're already creating the context to misunderstand how we talked about skilled labor itself. All right. Now that being said, there are clearly as as there always you know are technological advancements that make shifts in. In any sort of work and in particular uh, skilled trades and manual trades. Uh, so for example, manufacturing. Obviously, manufacturing is much different than it was even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago. And with those changes come changes in how we order or anticipate our needs when it comes to uh, working people. Um, in, in, in the United States, um, you know, about 20 years ago, we started off offshoring a lot of manufacturing. Um, and you know, good, bad, or indifferent. The reality is, is that it just it, it change, changes people's expectations about what we need to pay attention to and how we need to prepare the coming generations. So right now we're in a situation when it comes to the skilled trades where you have this enormous gap. Not only a gap in terms of the amount of uh, workers that are needed uh, in the economy to to do those tasks and to do them well, but there's also sort of this big age gap. You have you have this this sort of critical mass of folks who are nearing retirement. And, and typically what happens in an organic system is that whatever insights or skills could be passed along or could be the uh, material when you uh, uh, mentor the next generation. Well, there's just this gap of people that didn't have that opportunity. So the young people that come into the, uh, into the skilled trades by and large are faced with a situation where the people that they could learn from uh, by spending, say, 20 years working with them. Well, maybe they've got five years with them. Maybe they've got 10 years with them max, right? And that's if the young people show up and they're not showing up. Um, and so I would say you know, th these are some of the contributing factors, but I think 
the best candidate for a direct cause is that people don't know what work is. And the way that we talk about what work is and understand what work is and even understand our own work, we think it's some sort of adjunct to our existence as opposed to a primary way by which we find holiness, practice holiness, seek God. And, um, and without a sense of what work is, uh, without an attentive cultivation of the deep uh, meaning of work, well, then not only will our understanding of work begin to atrophy, but people just stop showing up. If people aren't in, uh, you might say, if people are invited to an adventure, uh, then they won't show up for the adventure. So, uh, but unfortunately, especially when it comes to the skilled trades, uh, people don't understand the beautiful mystery and adventure uh, that, and frankly, opportunity that exists in that type of work. So what is Harmel doing to sort of fill this gap? What's your comparative advantage in terms of training skilled laborers for the workforce? Well, I think part of it is not being concerned with that question in a sense, mm -hmm. right? Um, being able to fill the skills gap is certainly, uh, you know, the skills gap is certainly a crisis, but it's one of those types of crisis that comes about as the result of something and therefore to try to intervene and fix it directly you run the risk of actually making it worse potentially, right? So in other words, if you want a, 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 a healthy crop of, of, uh, of uh, workers in the skilled trades because you need to fill some economic gap, uh, well, you're not going to fill it with that understanding. Um, what, what we're trying to do is saying, OK, well, let's, let's go back to some basics here. Let's go back to understanding and forming, in our case, men, uh, the forming their habits, their uh, virtues, their imaginations, their skills, uh, forming them around this more fundamental notion of what work is for. And then as a byproduct, you have more and better workers. Uh, it's it's, it's C.S. Lewis's old, old notion about first and second things. The, the skills gap is a second things problem that is caused because we haven't been putting first things first. So instead of focusing on that second thing and filling it in, uh, we need to go back and, 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 and put first things first again. And in our small way, we have, you know, obviously we, we're not going to fill the skills gap. But in our, our small way, in our own little corner of the vineyard, we're attempting to build a place that uh, shows that when you put first things first, uh, the second things can uh, have a hope of being uh, healed and maintained. Would you say that a lot of your students come to Harmel because of the community and the formation that they would otherwise not get in other skilled trades training? Or, for example, if they would want to go to college because of the community aspect, would they consider Harmel because it also has that if they're more interested in working with their hands? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, there's, there's a number of reasons, uh, and I think for some that um, – may be operative in their decision, if not central uh, to the decision to to come to Harmel. Um, I, I think if if I were to speak broadly about most, if not all the students uh, that have come to us, I would say that um, each of them understands or at least um, intuits that whatever we're doing by way of education, by way of, you know, uh, workforce preparation. I, I really hate that word, but by whatever we're doing uh, to, to, to lay out paths in front of young people, there are uh, 
some serious gaps in how we think about it and therefore what the opportunities are. A lot of these fellas um, may not be able to fully verbalize it uh, at first, but there's always this sense that I know I have a particular set of desires, I have a particular genius, I have a particular way of operating in the world that is kind of like a square peg in a round hole in a lot of places, right? And, and, and usually that centers around the, the degree to which their involvement in the world and their for understanding the world, working in the world. I would say they, they, they all have much more of an embodied type of genius. So ed education in, in most places, frankly, is uh, um, there, there's the old uh, Sir Ken Robinson um, uh, had this line in a, in a talk he gave once where he said that most academics see their bodies as a way of getting their heads to meetings and that's really all the, the body's for. And I think it's funny because it's true. I think most ways we think about education and even most ways we think about work and economics is, is radically disembodied. And, um, and, and this is frankly why I think the gospel brings hope to work and economics is because the gospel – essential to the gospel is, is the incarnation. And this understanding that whatever we are in the world and however we know things and do things, we do them as human persons, that is to say embodied. And a lot of the fellows that come to Harmel, um, you know, if, if they're being asked to operate in a system that is primarily and sometimes exclusively abstract, they just don't have time for it. And – but – the unfortunate thing is um, for, for, for a lot of their experience and perhaps for some of them for their whole lives, that's been – because of the cultural language you use to talk about these things, that's been cast as a problem with them as opposed to no, actually that, that, that is actually a, a type of human genius. And in a way, it represents a more essential fundamental type of human genius insofar as it's embodied. And, and, and no, one, no one really thinks about it that way. And so if, if you say to – in our case, you say to a young fella that, hey, we, we, we get it. Yeah, we, we know. But also at the same time, they understand that just because you have this inclination that your embodied existence in the world is the way that uh, – is the type of genius you have. Just because you have that doesn't at the same time mean that you don't also have an intellectual calling and a mind to form. You know, this just doesn't really exist most places. And so I think a lot of them, at least in, in our experience, a lot of them says, wow, th this is – yeah, this is, this is for me. Um, so yeah, the um, – now the community is important as well. You know, um, We don't really have a lot of places where young men specifically can be formed as young men in community institutionally. That's something that's fallen off a bit. So I think that's very much a point of attraction uh, for a, a lot of these fellas. Um, the 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 notion that um, that this is a community that includes um, uh, working men, but working men broadly speaking, um, working men who aren't um, where where their spiritual life isn't foreign to them. That's I think an attraction, uh, and and the fact that um, you know if uh, if if you're between classes and our guys like to box and wrestle and. And uh, so if you're between classes and you want to throw the gloves on and hit someone, that's actually encouraged and not frowned upon. So, Can you elaborate a little bit on the humanities program you mentioned and 
additionally talk a little bit about why virtue and education in the Catholic tradition is important. Yeah. Well, in one, fa one, one way or another, I, I've, I've taught in the humanities for, for pushing 20 years now. And, um, and, I, and I found, uh, even though we, this is only our second year of operation, I found this is the first opportunity I've had to teach the humanities in the way I've always felt they, they ought to be taught. And, um, and, and the, the type of paradox is, is uh, you know, maybe I'll develop this line of thinking when I have more time uh, when I'm dead. But um, uh, there, I have this sneaking suspicion that trades education may be the salvation of the humanities. And what I mean by that is um, the humanities, like a, lot of, uh, uh, like a lot of subjects in universities and higher education, have become so deconstructed from any notion of uh, truth or um, our compatibility amongst the different uh, subjects in sort of the old scholastic model of the world. They've been, they've been so far removed, they've become so siloed uh, that they've become um, self-parasitic and they've ceased to be humanities at all. They've become these little postmodernist deconstructionist games that we play while we while away time uh, waiting for um, the emptiness of the end to get us all. But the humanities are, um, in my view, most centrally uh, the, the study of what it is to be human. And that is such a rich question that there is no, you might say, single pathway into it. Um, so at Harmel, we, we, like I said, we have a, a rather aggressive humanities component, but it is, uh, it's an integrated uh, humanities program. So it's not like you take a theology class over there and a philosophy class over here, but it is, is one, you might say, one narrative thread throughout the two years, and it includes philosophy and theology and literature and history and film a little bit. Um, but the idea is what can these uh, what can these disciplines and some of these artifacts from these disciplines, how can they help us understand what it is to be more human? Now, what's important about that too is not just sort of the question but the, the approach. Um, there's a, a, a lovely book called um, – I hope I get the name right – The Love of Learning and the Desire of God or something like this by a, by a fellow named Father Jean Leclerc and um, – and it's basically the history of monastic um, study and education. Uh, so, you know, really, real page turner. And um, but the the opening chapter, he makes this lovely distinction between um, types of uh, academic approaches, and one of them in the ages has generally won out both in our imaginations and in our methodology. It's the one we call the scholastic approach to academics. And in the scholastic approach to academics, what you do and, – and, and both of them are important by the way, but he's just making this distinction. In the scholastic approach to academics, what you do is you take up the subject and you, you in a sense isolate it a bit so that you can understand it for its own sake and you can value it for its own sake and you can explore and deepen your knowledge of the thing for its own sake apart from any type of use you may have for it. And that's super important. That's that type of disinterested – what's the word I'm looking for? You disinterested? Know, there it is. Disinterestedness. There's the word, right? That, that, that approach is very important to um, keeping yourself from um, – potentially corrupting the subject for your sure. own uses, okay? Uh, by the way, we don't do this anymore generally in education. Education is always for some sort of uh, 
um, utilitarian purpose. But this is very important and what it allows you to do is to create these important, um, very refined subjects of study. That's really good. And, and for most of the history of formal education in the last thousand years, it's been a scholastic approach. Let's look at the subject in your way, might say with a, with a sort of scientific distance. Okay, that's good. But Leclerc points out, well, that wasn't the only sort of model of academic um, theory in the church. He also points to what he calls the monastic approach to academics. And in the monastic approach, every occasion of learning is a means by which you can find God. So there is a sense in which you're, quote unquote, using a subject for spiritual formation. But um, in this monastic approach, as you approach the subjects of study, yes, you're interested in the material. You're interested in, a, in being disinterested in a way, right, of not using it uh, to plus up your own ego. But you're also interested in saying, what is it about this subject, this study, this book, this topic that somehow illuminates my relationship with God. And um, even though we didn't set out with those terms exactly, we sort of discovered those terms along the way in forming Harmel, that I think is a very apt description of how we approach the humanities is we, we, we want to go through some challenging works in literature and philosophy and theology and so on, uh, but we're not out to form academic scholars. We're out to let men encounter thinkers and writers and creative minds who have deep things to say about the human condition so that in that encounter, they might form their own imaginations, their sense of what's possible both in the world and in their communities and in their relationship with God. This has reminded me forcefully of a book I recently read, The World Beyond Your Head by Matthew Crawford. Mm -hmm. um, Matthew Crawford is a uh, philosopher and a motorcyclist. Oh, yeah. draws a lot of these connections oh, yeah. um, between the situated self and what we learn by being in relationship to the world around us. Absolutely. As in relation to the world around us, not merely an observer. Yes. Um, but really that embodiment factor of learning is so important. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting to think about the word humanities. We've just forgotten that being human means to be embodied. So I, I love that you pointed that out. That's exactly right. In fact, Crawford's uh, earlier book, Shop Classes Soulcraft, is, is – uh, very pivotal in this whole question. Uh, it's an excellent work. He, he doesn't draw out any theological – I think there are theological implications to his work. He doesn't mm -hmm. draw any of them out. I don't even know if he would agree that, that there are any, but but I, I think there certainly are. And, and that's an excellent, excellent book. Um, I think everyone needs – every educator at least needs to read that book. Um, but, you know, there's also some interesting uh, – you know, it, this is a little more specialized knowledge. Ian McGilchrist, the, the uh, English neurologist, um, specifically, this book, um, Master and His Emissary, has has quite a, a, a very, very deep scientific and philosophical deep dive into this question of our 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 desire to abstract things and remove ourselves from the world, as opposed to uh, approaching the world not only as an embodied um, you know, gestalt. There, there. I, I promised myself I'd throw a German word in today, <laughs> uh, but but sort of an embodied integral whole as a part of, of the world and in relationship to it. He's also excellent. But that, that gets a little more um, – yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's water's too deep for me to swim in. <laughs> well, thanks for your thoughts on that. We're getting close to the end of our time here. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious as a last question, 
How receptive are you finding the next generation of tradesmen to be with regard to this formation in virtue and the humanities as well as technical skills training? Um, and what are some of the main lessons that you've seen them really take to heart as they leave the academy? Well, I, I don't know if I can speak about the upcoming generation of tradesmen uh, because um, there's a sense in which the men who are at Harmel, we've self-selected people who already display uh, an interest not simply in uh, you know, becoming an electrician, for example, but in, in, in finding God in their vocation. So there's already a self-selection and a predisposition to, to, to walk this path. Um, but what, what, I, what I would say, not just in, in speaking with these fellows, but some of our collaborating shops and, and uh, the, the folks our guys work with and, and the people who have come around Harmel, is that it's um, – uh, I, I don't want to overstate it, but it seems clear to me that uh, when, when, uh, when people pick up what you've got and down the whole draft in a single drink, that tells me they're thirsty. That they've been thirsty, and um, I, I certainly can't apply that whole hog to an entire generation of people. But I have this very sneaking suspicion that as we live in a very disembodied age, which is uh, not only represented but exacerbated by things like um, social media and uh, an algorithmic encounter with the world, and and more recently by by COVID. The, the more disembodied we get, the thirstier we're going to be to rediscover what the gospel has always taught us, which is that um, this, this human life that we live and the work that we do in this material world as spiritual beings is not only is it good, but it is uh, the path that our Lord himself took up and um, – and is inviting us to follow him on. Um, so um, I, 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 my hope is – this is not anything unique to Harmel, certainly not. But my hope is, is that, that that gospel, the gospel of work as John Paul calls it, uh, will increasingly be made available to uh, not just people in the trades but in all places and all work where they can discover that – what seemed like a very everyday as sometimes even uh, toilsome uh, set of operations that they may find themselves doing is uh, in f not only is it meaningful, but it's meaningful because God himself has come into the workshop and is laboring at the bench. So. David, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.